My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. It's simple. Kill the Batman. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Hello and welcome to the Film Classification Podcast from the BBFC. Welcome, my name is James Blatch and with me this edition is Rebecca Mackay. I come in porridge. Absolutely, <laughs> and boy isn't that, <laughs> haven't I heard that often? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have nothing original to say, you should know that. <laughs> um, Rebecca, as you know, when we have our new co-presenters, we always ask them a little bit about themselves, and I think I might introduce you as being our longest-serving examiner, is that correct? Oh, goodness, yes, it probably is, actually. I joined in June 1994. Wow. Um, we were one of the group of the first, the first group of kind of professional full-time examiners. Um, prior, to, prior to that, people had had other work, other professional work, and, part, and did examining as a part-time yeah, thing. So, so it's a big change for the board, I think. And there were five-year terms of office. Yes. Like, like, like Barack Obama. <laughs> yes. Um, but you survived them. Well, I didn't, actually. It's oh. maybe little known, but I did actually have to find a job. And I worked very briefly. So I left and worked very briefly at the Film Council but came back not long after and uh, started freelancing and then part-time and I'm I'm back full-time. But I've done 17 years with it, 17 years in total. I like the way so. you said, I had to go and find a job. <laughs> I did. That um, sort of reinforces people's ideas that this isn't a real job. But uh. Well, no, a real job kind of, well, I suppose yeah. it's relevant that we're talking about real stuff today, but yes. um, yeah, a job in the real world. <laughs> yeah, great. Well, Rebecca, welcome to the podcast. And as you alluded to, today's topic is reality and we're going to look at the various facets that come with that, that title all the way from what fantasy mitigation means at junior categories through to extreme reality images at uh, at higher category levels. But that's our main topic later. Okay, Bollywood is 100 years old. It was uh, Raja Harish Chandra, the first film, made in 1913, a silent film. When we talk about Bollywood, we talk about Mumbai's uh, film industry, Hindi language mainly, but of course South Asian films generally attract uh, the moniker. And I thought it was timely to catch up with the latest trends in uh, it's an important and large part of the British film scene with our resident Southern Asian cinema expert, Hamad Khan. Hamad, here we are in what we've been slightly joking about being South Asian cinema, BBFC HQ. That's right. Hi, James. You are actually in that, also known as my office. It is quite a small office, but nonetheless, you are our resident expert, I guess I've described you as. Is that fair? Uh, I think that's probably fair. I'm the uh, film examiner with a specialism in South Asian cinema, or specifically Bollywood films. And you do, you're an examiner, I should say, and you examine all sorts of things from um, you know, mainstream work, pornography, through to South Asian cinema. But um, you're used, I guess, quite a lot for South Asian films because you translate for us. What languages do you speak? I speak uh, Hindi, Urdu, Punjabi um, and little bits of say Pashto and other regional languages but mainly Hindi, Urdu and Punjabi are there. For people who don't watch a lot of Bollywood and I suppose uh, I actually used to have a soft spot for Bollywood. I remember in my 20s they used to show on a Saturday morning on BBC Two to show a couple of Bollywood films. I quite enjoyed them. Then I just had no contact with them because I never went to cinema to see a Bollywood yeah, film. That makes sense. Then I come and work here and suddenly we see quite a lot of them. And I think the first point to make to people is that it's a big chunk of the films that get distributed in the UK. I mean, significant numbers every that's, week come through this building. That's absolutely right. I think that um, if we talk about numbers, um, possibly last year out of about 800 and... 50 plus uh, theatrical films, cinema films, 
well over 100 or 120 were only Hindi and Punjabi, and that's not accounting for other, other regional languages. So it's a big chunk. So financially, a big part of the British film industry in terms of distribution. Absolutely. Uh, these films go out uh, in a lot of screens in the UK regularly, and they have a pretty uh, loyal and, and strong, robust audience. So. And if you look at the top 10 films, there's usually... Bollywood fairly close to the top. Yeah, I mean, it's not unusual anymore to see a Bollywood film uh, in the top ten. Uh, and that's an interesting thing is that we're talking about a top ten which may have a film on something like 400 screens in the UK, and Bollywood films tend to be in, in much less screens. That speaks a lot about the kind of... Fewer. Yeah, much less screens. Oh. <laughs> I told you I'd pick you up. Um, okay, so in terms of the content texture of a Bollywood film, how it differs from a Hollywood film. I'll go first on this because I feel like an outsider here. Um, it's, it struck me that there is a comparison, I think, with how Hollywood knocked out films in large number, large quantity, fairly formulaic in the 1950s, musicals, people like Fred Astaire and Frank Sinatra and so on. And they weren't necessarily musical films, they were drama films or comedies, but they would have song and dance numbers in them routinely. And that's sort of where Bollywood is, although I think it's changing, but that's sort of where Bollywood is, is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. I mean, it's very much the song and dance uh, number, the musical element in these films is, is extremely important. It's part of what Bollywood is, it's part of why people go to the cinema and watch these films. And I guess there is a comparison to be made with the 50s big musicals. Um, and it's also one of the reasons why these films don't cross over so easily and there's people always talk about crossing over and stuff and and you know the fact that you can break up a you know a, a pretty a thriller or a police story with a big song and dance number where there's been a murder before and a rape afterwards in the middle there are people dancing around in you know wonderful costumes and that's fine that's part of the audience expectation it's something that is a little bit harder to comprehend today in sort of western cinema Some films, I definitely get the uh, impression that they've got the stars together, they've booked the studio, and then they start shooting the film, and they kind of do the story and the scenes as they go along a little bit. Is that? Oh, it's definitely the stars' diaries. The stars' diaries. I mean, the, the diary of a star in, in, in Bollywood is what dictates, I think, the the you know the movie calendar and the films getting produced. If you've got a Shah Rukh Khan has a week uh, in in July. There might be a film, you know, so it's right. kind of uh, driven by driven by that, yeah. And in terms of issues, Hamad, then, because really that's our, our core area here. Um, let's talk about sex and violence first of all, because they're treated quite differently, aren't they? Um, most Bollywood films will have scenes of violence in them. Most Bollywood films won't have scenes of sex in them. That's a fair point. Yeah, I mean, uh, this goes back to the same thing about audience expectations. Uh, of the cinema and the culture, so they're from a certain culture. So, uh, when I was a kid, uh, you know, my introduction to Bollywood was Amitabh Bachchan, the great kind of legend of Bollywood, and the angry young man that he was then. Uh, you know, taking on uh, mafioso criminals, thugs, henchmen, and disposing of them one by one. Uh, and that was something. Did that, they come you know, at him one at a time? They usually came to him about ten at a time. Oh, okay. But it would be two, three punches that would dispatch yeah. all of them, not mostly connecting punches no. either. So violence, quite, quite theatrical, quite theatrical, and that's still the case. Although again, transitioning, I think, but there, um, there has been a change. There's been an yep. interesting change in violence. I mean, violence, or what what we like to call dishum violence, in the dishum, the sound of a punch hitting somebody. I mean, okay. if you want, I can show you how that how that works. Yeah, you might actually hurt me. Okay, so you can pretend that I'm, uh, you know, yep. I'm punching you, and dishum, dishum, dishum. Yes. So that sound, oh, okay, yeah, that becomes what we like so to it's call. It's an onomatopoeic. 
tradition. Exactly. It? So it's um, uh, something that in the older Bollywood films we used to watch as kids, and you know they were all pretty uh, simply done, simply kind of uh, enacted. Uh, as I said, some of the punches didn't even connect, and you'd have guys, you know, f- rolling over and falling over as a result. That was what we would call sort of PG level violence. So a lot of these films are PG. But what's happened since is now you still have Disham violence, but it's hyper real, it's louder, it's much slicker, it's got elements of martial arts in there, but it's as um, detached from reality and as uh, much the same kind of entertainment. But it's become stronger and louder and far more hyperbolic, as they say. Yeah. So that PG violence, that PG Disham violence, is actually now a sort of 12 level yeah. Disham violence. It's still Disham, yeah. but it's 12 level. That's interesting. Yeah. The impacts have gone up a little bit, although they still probably don't connect and we still get wire moves that make, oh, yeah. make it look over the top. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then you do get, it does ramp up to 15 level, particularly some of the other southern Indian languages. Have I got my geography correct? Malayalam and Telugu. And Tamil as well. Yeah. Tamil as well, yeah, in particular. Um, and then I suppose the other side at the north, the Sikh warrior type um, mm. films, they can be, sometimes will be quite bloody actually. Absolutely, I mean you've got, uh, you know, the Tamil cinema is a you know, very uh, strong regional cinema that actually uh, had violence in it, with a, which had very stylized violence traditionally. I, I've seen, you can see that influencing the, the, the mainstream Hindi cinema as well. Um, and that might have something to do with some of its kind of strong addition violence. And yes, of course, I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the tradition of, of warriors and, 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 you know, fighters, fight, men fighting for honour, all that stuff is still a big draw in, in, in movies. So it's acceptable. Yeah. Now, what about some of the, um, well, let's talk about sex a little bit. Let's talk, that's always good. Uh, and some of the um, more challenging subjects, I think, probably for South Asian cinema audience, um, Gay sex storylines, uh, things like abortion, and uh, you know, just just one or two of the, the topics that perhaps gritty British cinema has been picking up and doing for a few years. It is happening, isn't it? Yeah, but it's, it's more difficult, more challenging. It is more challenging. Again, it's it's within a cultural uh, within cultural parameters. Um, but what you, what I've been seeing is that there are uh, new themes being tackled. Um, I mean, you mentioned uh, you know representations of of gay lifestyles, for example. There was a film a few years ago called Dostana, Friendship, Speech Marks, Friendship, Okay. Um, with mainstream stars, Abhishek Bachchan, um, John Abraham, and it was basically about, you know, a couple of guys, straight guys, and they're sort of, you know, pretending to be uh, to, to be gay lovers. Um, and it was a huge hit. I mean, it was, it was all done in a very kind of, uh, in lots and lots of innuendo. So... It was. They're sort of opening up a little bit to that's the, interesting. That, that does parallel how Hollywood and British television, for instance, dealt with homosexuality in the nineteen sixties and seventies through the camp character, and it was never really spelt out. I mean, classically, sort of Johnny Manor or the camp characters in the Doris Day films and so on. That's right. Without it really being spelled yeah. out, spelled out, spelled out. It's my English failing now. Mm. Um, so that's another parallel to draw. Absolutely. I mean, you know, Dostana is getting a sequel, so it's it's uh, clearly been accepted as you know this is the level that we can accept. Um, you is, that, see, is, this, is the pace of change increasing at the moment? It's slow. Or? It's slow. I mean, the thing is, in the mainstream cinema, we're still talking about a pretty simplified view of reality. Yeah. I mean, this is this is no different from Hollywood or other kind of dominant commercial cinemas. They have to keep it quite simple, not offend. 
uh, you know, the large uh, audience out there, you're probably seeing more challenging uh, representations in independent cinema in, in, from coming through in India, which is a good thing. Um, so that's kind of the difference. I have to say, when a good, well-made Bollywood film, and technically they can be absolutely brilliant, they can be quite poor as well, but can be absolutely brilliant, when they get going and they've got that right mix that allows the song and dance numbers to be an integral part of the experience. There's nothing quite like it in theatre, is there? It's an amazing experience. Yeah, it's an escape. I mean, you know... Beautiful colours. Yeah, and, and this is why they're so strong in the cinemas, because once you get into that screen, you're transported into a world of dreams, colour and music, and that's kind of what Bollywood is, and people have always wanted that. Yeah, and if you've not, you know, not gone to see a big, well-made Bollywood film, look out for the reviews and go and catch one, because it's quite an experience. Absolutely. And you get an interval. Yeah, you do. That was Hamad Khan and I chatting a little earlier about South Asian cinema, in particular Bollywood, celebrating its 100th anniversary this year. OK, we've been trawling the net and been asking you to send in your questions over the last few editions, and we've had quite a few. We've also, we weren't fishing for compliments, I have to say, but we did get quite a lot of nice emails, people saying, I haven't got a question, but just wanted to say that I find your podcast very interesting, and I really appreciate those comments. I won't read all them out, because modesty prevents me. Um, uh, but it's always nice to hear, so thank you for those. Uh, now, let's rattle through this, because we've got quite a few. Aaron Kavanagh uh, submitted quite a few questions. I've picked out a couple from you, Aaron. He asked about uh, imitable techniques, and we mentioned at one point that if you see someone hanging for a long period without them dying, this actually raises a concern perversely. Them surviving is a problem for us, because it gives the impression that you can put a noose around your neck and, and walk away harm-free. And he picks out Woody Allen's Love and Death, which has a scene of uh, Allen hanging himself for a long period and he doesn't die from it. Yet the film is rated PG. Well, the beginning of this answer is going to be familiar for other answers later, which is this is an old film, 1975. And what is it they say about the past? It's like a foreign country. They do things differently there. We did things differently in the 1970s. Um, I won't ask you about the 1970s because you weren't here then, Rebecca. But even from the 1990s, we've changed a lot and our guidelines... So that's the first thing to say, that I can't really comment exactly on what the examiners were thinking back in the 1970s. It did indeed get an A, the equivalent of a PG. Uh, It was a comedy, and uh, it wasn't meant to be taken seriously at that point when the noose went around Woody Allen's neck. Also worth mentioning, in 1975, there was no 12 available to them, so it was a PG or 15. That's quite a stark choice. I was just thinking about your point about the Woody Allen movie. It may also have been at the time that hanging wasn't the wasn't as widely acknowledged as an issue or as a problem and certainly we'd be concerned for younger viewers you know in terms of imitable techniques maybe it wouldn't have appealed to a younger audience and so we may not have the examiners at the time may not have considered that yeah yeah absolutely Uh, another question from Aaron then he also talked about American X uh, which he said was re-rated 15 last year which it was reclassified 15 down from 18 Uh, it got an 18 back in 1998 on film and 99 on video he compared the strong violence in american x strong racial language um, and very strong language with the treatment that we gave to this is england and it's quite a good comparison i thought from aaron but they are different films and one of the things to say about american x of course is it's it's reasonably old now and um, back into uh, uh, in the 90s uh, and it classified last year under current guidelines of course rather than the guidelines at the time we do allow for very strong language we do allow for uh, strong references to sexual violence 
um, depending on context. Now, he picked out a particular scene in American History X of a prison rape in which there is sight of um, uh, blood, which is, you know, uh, I'm not going to describe the detail that Aaron's gone into this because some people might be eating. Uh, but if you're familiar with the film, you might remember the scene. Um, and under our guidelines, we do say any portrayal of sexual violence must be discreet and have strong contextual justification. And the rape scene in the film is actually quite brief. It's reasonably discreet. And while the violence in the film is also brief and undetailed, albeit still shocking enough to exceed expectations at a lower category than 15, the guidelines do say at 15, violence may be strong. It should not dwell on the infliction of pain and injury. We also say the strongest gory images are unlikely to be acceptable. We didn't feel that went that way. This is England, almost a separate argument in a, in a way. We'd just gone to the public at the point that This is England came in and talked to them about very strong language. And there was a concern, uh, a very tangible and measurable concern about very strong language in association with more aggravating factors like violence, uh, particularly racially motivated violence. Um, and that film really just ticked all those boxes that the public said that they were concerned about with very strong language. And that was the reason that it got an 18 and that was upheld after reconsideration viewing. Um, and, and you know, we, we found ourselves having to respond very directly to public concerns with that classification decision. But I will say, Aaron, in a nod to the way that you brought it up, it was a, should we say, a close decision. I mean, it went through the mill in this building, didn't it? It got viewed by a lot of different people and there was a lot of discussion about this as England. It really did. So a lot of thought went into it. I think we'll take uh, a couple more quick ones. Zach Wolford from Rayleigh in Essex. He wanted to know why Back to the Future is rated PG when the movie contains offensive language. I did actually email Zach back and say, which particular language are you concerned about? And he was talking about um, shit and bastard and bugger. But uh, basically, there are words that we do pass at PG. And our guidelines make clear that we allow mild bad language in a PG film. Um, son of a bitch goes at PG, but bitch, if it's directed as a stronger word, we call it moderate uh, moderate language. Although there are occasions when bitch, if you've had a bitch of a day, for instance, we might pass out at PG. A little bit of an overlap there. Um, but that's basically our position on that, uh, Zach. The other thing to say, back in 1985, point I made earlier, there was no 12. So you would have gone from PG to 15 for Back to the Future, which would have seen a bit of an overreaction. Uh, and finally, another historic one, the last one I'll take for now, which is from Gary Cousins, who talked about sexual violence. When we talked about sexual violence, we said that it's very unlikely that we're going to cover sexual violence at U, PG and junior categories. And he, of course, is always someone somewhere. He says, I know something's at PG. And he picked out a 1964 Doctor Who episode which uh, deals with the issue. I mean, it's, uh, it's a long time ago, the 1960s. Different sensibilities existed and the way things were portrayed, I mean, frankly, you could really not take that on board as sexual violence. Double meanings were very much uh, of their day. Um, and so it's almost impossible, Gary, for me to give you an accurate answer sitting here in 2013 in the BBFC to explain why that decision was made in 1960s. But we do have paper files available for student research here. Maybe one day someone will dig out some of those more interesting decisions from the past. OK, thank you very much indeed for your questions. Podcast at bbfc.co.uk. We love to hear from you. We love your comments. So do carry on sending them in. Right, we're going to move on to our topic of discussion, Rebecca. Great. Why you're here. Thank I know you've you. been thinking about this. So we want to talk about reality. Now, a bit unlike language and sex and violence and one or two of the other things we've talked about, reality has lots of different 
aspects to it, doesn't it? So we've decided instead of going up the categories, we're going to divide reality up into what it means in different ways. But what does make a difference to the film, if, if whether the story's true or not is, is immaterial, what is material is the setting, because that's crucial to the context and the way we make our decisions. So a real-world setting versus a fantasy setting will make a difference, won't it, Rebecca? Most definitely, and it's worth making the general point about settings that the more obviously fantasy a setting is, then this is going to be a huge mitigating factor in terms of how you are affected or impacted by what is in the film. Conversely, of course, with real-world settings, especially domestic ones, and especially for children, I think you have the closer the the identification is, if you like, with the real world, just as we identify closely with some characters who we recognise. Um, the closer that is, then possibly this could be an aggravating factor, and we'd be carefully considering how much uh, a, a, a viewer might be impacted upon by what they see. You could get lots of themes, you know, domestic violence, domestic issues happening in real-world settings, or you can have even fantasy films with realistic settings. Twelve is a bit of a family category, can be a family category. Uh, and as you go lower down the categories, this just does become a more acute issue, as you mentioned earlier, Rebecca. So for children, particularly younger children, the home is a safe environment for them, and parents do a lot to ensure that they feel safe. So it would be inappropriate for a children's work to have that home invaded in the way that at 15 and 18 horror films, for instance, the home invasion movie, the Straw Dogs type episode, um, yes, definitely. are very much part of what we like to be unsettled by if we choose to watch those films. Okay, well, let's move on to a different aspect of reality, which is real footage, uh, which we get primarily, I suppose, in documentary. And this can be quite an upsetting watch uh, for people. Uh, and it does, again, depend entirely, really, on how it's presented. Well, absolutely, once again. Going back to the old context, context overarching principle that we do so often. It, yeah, real footage isn't quite as straightforward as it may apparently seem on the outside. Um, I know that we were talking earlier and you mentioned, you know, the fact that we have the first question we have to ask is what purpose does it serve? And does it go, does the film go out seriously to explore a theme or to educate its, and to educate its audience? Is it genuinely thoughtful? Um, or is there a kind of slightly more salacious or sensationalist aspect to it that is, is really going to um, just deliver entertainment for its own sake? And you can present um, some fairly strong ing images and still achieve a 12A, depending on that surrounding context. I'd pick out John Pilger's documentary, The War You Don't See, about the wars in the Middle East. I think it was concerning itself with Iraq uh, primarily. And um, Pilger used real footage from that war, but used it, I thought, in a very responsible way, and enough to illustrate the point without it becoming a part of the film, you know, another cell of the movie. Um, and that context that he was presenting a case that he was making, a sort of a polemic case that he was making, uh, very much justified that footage. Oh, definitely. And I, I think it was a very sobering documentary as well. And uh, once again, genuine and thoughtful. There was a, a really gripping uh, crime documentary called West of Memphis uh, released last year I think it was in fact 2012 um, about the uh, arrest of three young men in uh, in three young men in West Memphis not the main Memphis Tennessee um, and that was about the concern itself with the murder of three children and you did see footage uh, police footage of the bodies being recovered and some photographs uh, of the crime scene but it was a detailed 
absorbing, narrative-driven documentary. And again, justified use of strong, quite upsetting images. I think so. It was a very harrowing, and but again, a very sobering documentary that had went out to genuinely explore what had happened in this real investigation. And the footage, I was just thinking, I, I did classify the film, and it, it, the images of the children were very disturbing, but very sensitively handled, if you can say that. And I think had that been in a different context or even a dramatic reconstruction context, I, I think that maybe the, the argument might have um, pushed pushed the category up or certainly made it a stronger 15, yeah. if you like. Yeah. Uh, what other films would you pick out as examples of the way that quite potentially upsetting real footage has been justified? Well, there are two I'd pick on, both fairly, well, one fairly recent, which is called uh, a documentary about um, Italy and uh, the politics and the mafia influence over politics called Girlfriend in a Coma. Um, very interesting documentary, um, but it contains archive footage of street riots and the aftermath of some mafia killings, which is it's fairly brief and it's the aftermath only, so that would be fine under our guidelines at 12. But there was one really quite shocking scene which shows a mafia-style execution killing that was caught on CCTV footage. So it's black and white and grainy, but you do clearly see someone being shot in the, he- in the back of the head. And it's a real murder, and that really kind of hits you somewhere. Um, again, it was only the amount was shown to t- just to show how prolific mafia activity is and how dreadful it is. And I think, again, it was so clearly aversive and the, the construct of the documentary set out to really inform and educate the, the, the public on, on what the political issues are in Italy. So it was passed at 12A. Yeah, that's. Yeah. I mean, that's, and and the stronger the image, the stronger the justification's got to be. So Absolutely. that's that's a really yeah. good example of both in action. Really, a strong image and strong justification. Yes, yes, yeah. quite right. Uh, and there was another one, wasn't there? There's one other which is slightly older, but really exercised. It's it's a film called The Bridge, mm. which was a documentary about the Golden Gate Bridge being used as a destination location for suicides. Um, I think you watched this as well. Yes, didn't I you, did. James? Yeah, yeah. Um, that were it, it really challenges. Um, there's real footage which is highly emotively shot, I think, and mm. kind of constructed in the document, showing people from ground level prolonged focus on the build up to jumping, uh, to them actually jumping and landing in the water below. Thematically, this was troubling and a very uncomfortable watch. And the way that the film was edited, we felt was an aggravating factor because there's also some ambiguity about whether there's any glamorisation of Mm. the issue. So we were really talking about the 15, 18, and it went out, the outcome was that it was classified at 18. There were lots of concerns about imitability and glamorisation. And it's worth saying that there aren't any particular gruesome images. There's no close-up images of people hitting the water. And uh, in some ways, that was, I felt, was a bit of an aggravating factor because it almost made it look a painless uh, way to go. And there was one particular suicide towards the end of the film which felt like it was a bit of a payoff. You'd been expecting it, had been built up, and you'd seen some footage of the, uh, the man in question before. There were all sorts of editorial issues with the film that really were beyond our remit in terms of of judging it. But if you go online and read about the background to the bridge, you'll find that there are complaints from the family about the way that the filmmaker 
approached them and and the permissions he sought to film the bridge itself may be filmed under false pretenses. Mm -hmm. So there was a controversial film from beginning to end, not least with us. And and despite the lack of of gruesomeness, um, we felt this was a film that needed to go at 18 because it was disturbing. Yes, yes, it did. And it went with the short insight carried carried on. It was um, contained suicide theme and footage of real suicides. And we also, the board contacted the ICA um, with a suggestion that the numbers for the Samaritans could be displayed in venues where the work was going to be exhibited. Okay, well, let's move on to our final area, which brings us on to that, really, which is extreme reality, what we call extreme reality uh, in the building. And this is a very, uh, can be very gruesome, macabre images of real death. And uh, this is, you know, people ask me, well, you have a great job, but these are the bad days uh, in this building of wa- watching some of this material. And it stays with you your whole life, um, seeing people being shot in the head, people committing suicide, people being killed by trains. Um, and in their worst examples we've had um, work submitted for instance there was one called terrorist killers and other wackos where this footage was put together apparently for people's entertainment with a bit of a rock soundtrack and some wacky uh, comments made underneath just before people are shot dead at firing squads and so on Um, we rejected that work after some consideration you know reject is is a last resort for us but there was an argument advanced at the time that there was the potential to reduce people's empathy for human life uh, with exposure to that for entertainment purposes. But that's not to say, Rebecca, that any one of those images couldn't be accepted in another environment. You're right. Uh, I have to agree with you. I think that was one of the most emotionally um, disturbing experiences I've had, and I I can still see the images in my head Mm. today. Um, I think it was the lack of contextualization that, which you've just touched on, was was actually the problem. There were real killings, executions, suicides, mutilations, torture of human beings and animals, which was absent of any journalistic or educational or other kind of structuring reasonable argument or context which just made it if it felt so dreadfully wrong and as you said again that it was just for entertainment and seemed to invite some kind of sadistic relish in 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 human and animal suffering just appalling but then we've had other um submissions there was a documentary called paramedics uh which was a a no-holds-barred, I suppose, um, way of presenting the work of paramedics. There's a place, I think, um, for that type of documentary where um, you've chosen to see it, you've decided to watch something that's going to present in a very, I mean, possibly for your own professional benefit, going into that line of work. Um, And that documentary was passed at 18, even though there were some strong images, again, that do stay with you. Yes, yes, it was. Similarly, with a film called Executions, was passed at 18. It was um, looking at state-sanctioned killing, if you like, around the world and some dreadful images, but it was a serious documentary. And, uh, yeah, there, there is every every reason for adults to, to watch that kind of material where, there, where we don't see a particular harm or legal issue at the adult category. And people will get bored of me saying context oh. is important, <laughs> but it really is, and it, it underlines everything we say. And it's good that we have the flexibility. I mean, that's at the heart of what we do, isn't it? Otherwise, we could just tick boxes, and we don't. We don't. We're humans, and we watch we it, and we make a rational decision. Yeah. Rebecca, thank you so much for taking part. Oh, it's been a pleasure, James. Thank pod- you. 
Fantastic. Um, also want to say thank you to our editor, Catherine Anderson, who does a lot of work behind the scenes for these podcasts. Uh, keep your questions and comments coming in, podcast at bbfc.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at BBFC. You can follow me at James Blatch. And until next time, when we'll have another topic of interest, I hope, we'll see you then. Bye-bye. Bye.